So we're still in John's Gospel, so if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John. We've finished John 12, we, just, we spent a few weeks in John 12, and we've come to John 13, and we'll read verses 1 to 20. There are Bibles at the back if anyone wants to grab one, but we're in John 13, we're reading verses 1 to 20. Let's pray before we read God's word. Praying the words of a Psalm 19, which we also did this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So it says Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Verse 1 of John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You will shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives the one who has sent me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We really have no idea how much Jesus loves us. We know the song well, I think. Um, I certainly taught our family it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we know Bible verses, and we know that Jesus loves me. It's true. 
But if you are a born-again believer, it is absolutely the case that you and I do not begin to fathom how much Jesus loves us. He loves us to the end. Verse 1. Just simply this afternoon, I want to look at four ways that Jesus loves you. He loves you, number one, to the end. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus understands that his hour has come. His days are numbered. That soon he will have to die for the sins of the world. And I'm not being morbid, but how, what would you do if you knew you were going to die in a week? You had a week to live. I know some in this room have had serious illness, but I'm not sure any of us have faced a week. What would you do? Well, many people, I think, maybe especially in the world around us, would turn inward. And you'd understand that, feel sorry for themselves. Or I'm going to enjoy this or that. I'm going to do things, no consequences. No consequences. But Jesus, knowing that in, in his final week, he turned his attention to others. It is amazing. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love was directed to his own. We've seen in John already his special love. If God loves the world, he sent his son. But there is a special covenant people, shepherd sheep love that Jesus has for those of us who are his. So he's spoken to crowds. He's spoken to well-wishers. He has spoken to enemies. But now he says, my love is directed to you. The few who had gathered for the feast of the Passover for this meal. And in John's Gospel, the last week of our Lord's life focuses on the disciples. Not so much the crowd anymore, or even the conflict with the Jewish leaders. We get to that with his arrest and crucifixion. But now he's focusing on the disciples. Moving into what we well know as the upper room discourse. All the world is falling away and their Messiah is going to do the most Messiah unlike the Messiah thing possible to die. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He washes their feet and he teaches them about the Trinity. He loves them. On the way, on his way to heaven, he reaffirms that he loves those who are in the world. That in itself is an act of condescension. I was about to say condensation, but I it's, it's condescension, isn't it? Um, I get in trouble for saying things wrong anyway most of the time, but I nearly got it wrong then, but I pulled myself up at the last minute. But people so far beneath him, so, so far removed from him. He said he loved them to the telos, and that Greek word has even come to our English word sometimes. A telos is the final point of fulfilment, an end, to the uttermost. What does it mean that Jesus loved them to the end. 
It could mean that he loved them to the extreme. It could mean that he loved them to the end of his earthly life. It could mean that he loved them to the end of time. I do not know why we or even think we have to choose. It can mean all of those things. But he loves them to the end. That is how much Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. And he loves you to the end. The film, the book, whatever, whereas the Lion King taught us that word, Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. And they say it's a wonderful phrase. It's, it's mentioned as a wonderful phrase. But this is much more, a million times more, better phrase. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. It's one of the most beautiful phrases ever. The most beautiful phrase that Jesus loves you to the end. Sadly, in our fallen world, not every marriage goes the distance. Not every parent-child relationship is sweet. If you've lived long enough, you've had friends who have hurt you. You've had people who you thought were on your side turn against you. And then maybe at school or at university, you had friends, you were close, you did things together. You said you were friends forever. I, I had friends, deep friends, and you can say that's okay, in Vienna. I haven't spoken to, to them in six years. But you may not have spoken to a friend who you said you were friends forever for 20 years. And when you've forgotten people, when others have forgotten you, when relationships have ended or broken or been separated by death, Jesus still loves you. So having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. So that's the first thing I want you to see, that Jesus loves you until the end. Secondly, he serves you to the extreme. See the juxtaposition between what Jesus knows and what he does. He knows his hour is coming. I think many, if they knew their hour was coming of death, they would have the last best meal. And when he knows his end is coming, he wants to love. Look at the same juxtaposition in verse 3. What does Jesus know? He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. And that's a lot to know that his heavenly Father had given the worlds to him. He'd given all things. What else does Jesus know? He knows he's come from God. He knows where he has come from. And he knows where he is going. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God was going back to God. He knows where he is from. He knows where he is going to the realms of heaven and glory. But yet, he saw this not as an opportunity to finally be free from the confines of earthly humility. He saw this moment as an expression of even greater condescension. If ever outside of the cross there was an example of Philippians, here it is. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you had been around some people or some places so much less 
than you were used to. And you knew that you were ready to go. And you knew that you were going back to the nice place you were from. The nice house, the nice food, the people who treat you right. Angels, you're going back to all of that. Would you then in your final days use that as an opportunity to express even greater humility? What Jesus does is a scandalous act of service. He removed the outer garment. He had a long towel to gird his loins and probably put over his shoulder. And a long towel that would hang all the way down so he could use it to dry the disciples' feet. So he had a bare chest, he had bare legs, he had covered his waist with a towel to do the work that the most menial of servants would undertake. We know this well. The Jewish law, not in the Old Testament, but later traditions, would not even allow Jewish servants to wash the feet of Jewish masters. It was the job of women, children, preferably Gentile, servants or slaves. And they've been walking, and they haven't been walking in, you know, we, you know, we, we live in Keswick, so it's the walking town of the world probably, but you know, nice big merino wool socks and really comfortable shoes. No, they, they, they walked in sandals, in the dust and the dirt, muck and mire. So they came in. And I think we've seen again this before. They would have been reclining at table. There was no hint. On, they, they wouldn't have been sitting like Da Vinci told them, you know, like a, a table in the Last Supper. No, they would have been, they'd have been, they, they would have been reclining around a thin kind of table in the middle. And their feet would have been fanned out, almost like a circle. And Jesus approaches, he pours the water into the basin, and he kneels down in a scandalous act of servanthood to wash their feet. Peter gets a lot of things wrong, we know that, but here he thinks, I've gotten something right. He maybe thought, this is my best moment, this is my best point, since I called him the Christ. And then I misunderstood what that meant, but here we go. Jesus, no way. You're the master, you're the Lord, you do not serve us, we serve you. He thought that this is probably his best moment since he said, you are the Christ, but he got this wrong as well. In one sense, the Bible says, of course we are slaves to Christ. We owe him our obedience, he is our master. Jesus even says later in the text, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But in another sense, he is our servant. It almost does not feel right to say. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Though they did not know it. Though they definitely did not understand it. In an act of supreme act of humiliation, Christ displayed his supreme glorification by stooping to serve. I've, there's a Danish film, it's, it's quite the vogue these days to watch foreign language films and just watch the, um, the subtitles and you can get some, fair, fair, you get some fairly, I think sometimes, better, you know, better series. But there's a Danish film called Babette's Feast. I don't know if anyone's seen that, from 1987 
maybe if you can always dig it out. It's really ancient if it's 1987. That's a long time ago, isn't it? But there's some elderly and pious Protestant sisters called Martine and Philippa. And they live in a small village on the, by Jutland in 19th century Denmark. And their father was a pastor, but their father had died. And the austere sect was drawing no new converts. These ancient sisters preside over an ageing congregation. And the story flashes back 49 years, showing these sisters when they were young. They were beautiful, they had many suitors. But their father rejected every young man who wanted to marry. And the sisters decided to stay with their father and spurn any life outside Jutland. Anyway, 35 years later, this girl called Babette turned up at their door and she just carried a letter saying that she was a refugee from Paris where there was bloodshed and recommending her as a housekeeper. So they can't afford to take her in, but she works for free. And for 14 years, Babette serves as their cook, producing an improved version of the bland meals that was typical of the nature of the congregation who were quite, you know, who were quite austere, gaining their respect. And her only link to her former life in Paris is a lottery ticket that a friend renews for her every year. And one day she wins the lottery, 10,000 francs. And instead of using the money to return to France and her lost lifestyle, she decides to spend it all on a delicious dinner for these sisters and their congregation on the founding pastor's birthday. And more of, it's more than just a feast, it's an outpouring of her appreciation, an act of self-sacrifice. She tells no one that she's spending her winnings on this meal. And the sisters accept the meal and her offer to pay for this real French dinner. And Babette arranges for her nephew to go to Paris and gathers her supplies. And they're plentiful, it's sumptuous, it's exotic. And these never-seen-before ingredients come, preparations commence. And the sisters are a little bit worried about are they sinning by eating this glorious food, but... They agree to eat it, and Martine's former suitor, Lorenz, now a famous general, comes, and, and uh, he's unaware of the, the, their austere plans. And from Paris, he's the only person there who's qualified to comment on the meal. And he says, this is amazing, and he regales the guests with how extraordinary the food is and how beautifully cooked it is. And he said, the only time I've had a meal like it before was in Paris at the Café Anglais. And over this meal, old wrongs are put right, ancient loves are rekindled, there's a tremendous unity. And the sisters assume that Babette will now go back to France, Paris, but she says, no, all the money's gone, and then she reveals that she used to be the head chef at Café Anglais and tells them that dinner there for 12 cost 10,000 francs. And Martine tearfully says, now you'll be poor for the rest of your life. Babette says, no, I'll never be poor. And then Philippa says, but this is not the end. In paradise you will be the artist God meant you to be. And embraced her with tears in her eyes saying, how you, enchant the how you will enchant the angels. But 
it's just a it's just, it's just a film in this Danish and it has subtitles. But she stooped to serve them, knowing that they do not know who she is, or what she is doing for them, and she prepares a feast that only she could prepare. Well, that's a very imperfect, but it's an example. Jesus explains this example for them. This is the way that Christ serves us. We're in John's Gospel, with all of its Christology, he, he's used words like the Logos, the Word made flesh, the only begotten Son of the Father, the miracle worker, the one who's sent from the Father, the only way to the Father, the one who reveals the Father, the one who is God of himself. This Christ stoops to wash his disciples' feet, even the feet of Judas, who will betray him. We do not know how much Jesus loves us. He loves us to the end. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. He loves us to the end, and he serves us to the extreme. And thirdly, he cleanses us from top to bottom. Peter gives his typical Peter response. You know, Peter is almost a word for, not, not Peter our friend, but Peter is a typical kind of impetuous response. Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you'll have no share with me. This is all or nothing, Peter. And Peter, thinking, well, I got that wrong, but I'll get this right, says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and feet. And Jesus says, you get that wrong too. Well, verse 10 is slightly difficult because there's a little footnote there if you do have a Bible, some manuscripts omit, except for his feet, actually. I do think the best of the manuscript tradition has it as the ESV translates it, including that exception, except for his feet. But verse 10 says, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Has anyone not, not got the ESV? Does it, is it omitted in, I don't know, no, but it's, it's emitted in some version. And it, it's confusing. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And Peter says, you need to wash all of me. And Jesus is replying to Peter, no, you do not understand. It's not about physical washing. You do not need the whole bath. You just need Jesus. This is not about physical washing. This is not about a physical bath. You need Jesus cleansing power. It is a symbol from top to bottom, but Jesus says all you need is this once for all, non-repeatable act of purification for your sins. The symbolism is about service, but it is also about cleansing. And so just as Jesus displays humility in a lesser way but still true, the disciples have an opportunity for humility. Because as uncomfortable as they were for the Lord to disrobe and stoop down and wash their feet and dry their feet, they have to be humble enough to know they need it. Do you know you need to be clean? Would we put Jesus at arm's length? Not only because it seems awkward, but it is 
out of proportion for Jesus to be doing this? Or is there a part of us, no Jesus, I do not exactly need this, I can take care of my own feet, I can step into my own basin, which is how some approach God. What Bible verse does it say that God helps those who help themselves? I've heard that quoted many times. God helps those who help themselves. Or the next one is, cleanliness is next to godliness. You find those two verses in the same place in the Bible. Nowhere. Or I just need a little God. Or I need a little Jesus. Or I need Jesus to help me. I'm not filthy. I'm not dirty. I do not need the Saviour to disrobe and wash my feet. Now, will you allow yourself to be washed by the only one who can cleanse you? Jesus loves you more than you know. He loves you to the end. He serves you to the extreme. He cleanses you from top to bottom. And fourthly, he loves you by pointing you to himself. And we see this in verses 18 through 20. They've been cleansed individually, but he says not all of them are clean. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And part of what we see in the next scene is that they have a cleansing individually and they're about to have a cleansing corporately because by verse 30, G Judas leaves at night. So the traitor will be cleansed corporately. They'll be cleansed from his filth. Verse 2 tells us that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Not to absolve Judas of his responsibility, but to emphasise how diabolical it is to betray Christ. In I, only, I only really noticed it for the first time this week. Matthew, Mark and Luke, you have lots of exorcisms. You know, the casting out of demons, but in John, none. And it's almost as if John wants us to see the demonic activity concentrated with the devil's work with Judas because that is where it is concentrated this disciple the one who broke bread with Jesus betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver and Jesus says it is to, to fulfill the psalm Psalm 41 9 even my friend whom I trusted ate my bread has lifted my his heel against me which could could mean lifting up your heel to trip someone or lifting up a heel like you're walking out on someone. Or lifting up your heel to shake the dust off your feet. Or perhaps lifting up a heel like a horse does to kick. Whichever image you take, it is not a good one. It means betrayal. The one who was close, the one who shared table fellowship with him. Your friends, your family, you've had a meal together, you've been in a home together. And now one will lift his heel to kick him or walk out on him. And he will walk out. But notice even here as he envisions the betrayal to come, Jesus is still thinking of them. He's setting them up to believe. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And that's that Greek phrase again, Ego am I, I am. Echoes of the divine name that is revealed to Moses, Exodus 3. Ego am I, I am. Jesus is saying, I want you to see who I really am. So I'm telling you now, 
what is going to take place, because I know you are hard of heart. I know you are hard of hearing. And when it happens, I want you to remember that I told you so you will believe, finally believe, I am the one you've been waiting for. So he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Likely not meaning the Holy Spirit, though he will send the Spirit, but meaning the disciples. One will betray Jesus, but eleven will be his disciples. And Jesus will send them out. They will believe in Jesus, will preach in his name. At the end of his life, he is thinking of them. Now for most of us, it is not love to direct attention to yourself. Love is to direct attention away from yourself. But Jesus here, in the supreme act of love, not only is it focused on them, but he wants them to be focused on him. And he can do this because he is the Christ. It is the most profoundly selfless thing he can do. To serve them, to die for them. So that they might believe in him. Because only when they, we believe in his name, can they, can we have eternal life and have it abundantly. Jesus alone can be entirely other-centred, while at the same time pointing everything back to himself. We have a stunning picture of, in John 13 of love without limit. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Meatloaf sang in the 90s. I'm not really quoting Meatloaf seriously, but I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Well, there's nothing that Jesus will not do, save for sin. He loves to the very last breath. Washing feet was an act of hospitality in the ancient world. You see it in the Old Testament more than you realise. We saw today, didn't we, the three guests who visit Abraham. The angels with Lot in Genesis 19, that's next time. The servant who finds Rebekah in Genesis 24. The brothers when they are welcomed by Joseph in Egypt in Genesis 43. They all talk about, welcome, wash your feet. But they're self-washing or a servant to wash your feet. The only example of a superior washing the feet of an inferior is John 13. Nowhere else is it attested to in Jewish literature, in Greco-Roman literature, do you have a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Only Jesus, John 13. Turn to him. I, I grew up in a street preaching Tradition. My, my, my father used to street in, preach in the street. And he often used to say to us, as well as in his preaching in the street, you do not know if you have tomorrow. You do not know if you have tomorrow. But you can turn to him today. You can humble yourself. Your feet are dirtier than you think. But Christ can wash them cleaner than you can imagine. How ought my life to be different? knowing how much Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. That Jesus would do this for you. That Jesus has shown himself even more of a suffering servant. Not only to stoop down and to wash feet, but to die the death on the cross for sinners like you and me. Shouldn't that matter how we live our life tomorrow? Shouldn't that matter? 
set us free from feeling that we need to prove ourselves all the time to everybody. Feeling that you're nobody. Feeling that you're not anything. What you do, what you live for, the sort of kindness, the grace you show, knowing what Jesus has done for you, knowing how much Jesus loves you. Our lives would be different. I, I know they would be different if we grasp just a little bit more, really, really, how much he loves you. He loves you to the end. He serves you to the extreme. He cleans you from top to bottom. And he points you to himself. We all underestimate how much he loves us. He loves us more than you think. Oh, my dear friend, my brothers and sisters, we're family here. But I, I cry, I pray, that you would know a little bit more how much Jesus loves you. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.